understand the Bible. So we are now 11 weeks into this series. I hope it's been helpful for you. I just want to, first of all, encourage you and commend you for this. Um, If you want a more technical name for what we've been studying, the term is hermeneutics, and that is the principles of interpreting the Bible. And so basically it's what most seminary students would get in some of their early semesters is, is, is this class on hermeneutics, how to understand the Bible. And so you basically got in a hermeneutics class over the last 11 weeks. I just didn't call it that because I figured if I called that, no one would come. So we call it how to understand the Bible, but it's one in the, the same thing. And so I'm glad you're back for it. So again, we're kind of wrapping it up uh, tonight. I know when I first was introduced to these ideas over, that we've talked about the last 11 weeks of how you understand Scripture, again, for me, I first got exposed to all this in a hermeneutics class in seminary. It stretched me. It made me uncomfortable in a lot of ways. There was stuff I'd never heard, and I got really convicted because I realized I'd misunderstood so much of the Bible over so many years. And so the the class that I took on this was just so freeing to me because it really opened my eyes to how you understand Scripture. And that's what I've been hoping to pass along to you guys over these last 11 weeks. Now, before we get started into tonight, which tonight I'm calling it Keep Learning, resources to help me. I'm going to try to answer some of the questions. I've only gotten two questions from you guys that I asked over the last few weeks. Are there questions that you want me to address? I've gotten two, and I'm going to try to answer those this evening. Before we do that, I want to look at just several scriptures with you guys just to remind us of the big picture of why we're even studying this and what's at stake with this and why it's been worth our time to take a journey through how to understand the Bible. First of all, Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Friends, when, when it comes to what's commanded of God's people related to Scripture, the command is not spend 10 minutes in the morning with the Lord. The command is do not let the book of the law depart from your mouth. And so this is what God expects of us. We're supposed to be meditating on His Word day and night. And so we're doing this so we how to understand the Bible so that we can do this, so we can meditate on the Scripture, so that we can know the Lord behind it because we need to know that. We need to be careful to do all that's written in it. Then Psalm 1, 1 through 3. We've looked at this one before on Wednesday nights. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. Again, why is it worth our time to understand the Bible and to take time to learn in that and to keep learning in that? Because when we know God's word, we know God, and we experience blessing. We become like the imagery here of a tree planted by streams of water. How about Proverbs 35? Every word of God proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. Every word proves true. We want to make sure we understand those words and know what God is saying to us. And then John 17, 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Friends, if we want to grow in holiness, we cannot do so apart from the scriptures. We want to make sure we understand the scriptures so we know what the Lord has for us. And then finally, 2 Timothy 2, 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There's one phrase that summarizes what we've been trying to do over these 11 weeks. It's that phrase right there, rightly handling the word of truth. We want to make sure we're understanding scripture correctly. Now, before we turn the page, while you're looking at this, quick review here. We'll do a, here's our quick little test for tonight. Ready? Okay, Joshua 1.8. What genre would that be? History, historical narrative. Yeah, that is historical narrative. It's telling us what actually happened in history, and then we obviously get lessons and application from that. How about Psalm 1, 1 through 3? What genre would that fall under? Was that? 
Poetry, yeah, this, this would be fall under poetry. And if you remember from when we talked about poetry, there's a lot of imagery in it. There's a lot of similes and metaphors. We looked at lots of different Im- types of images that are found in the poetry in the Bible. And this one is no different. He is like a tree planted by streams of living water. And we talked about poetry was designed to be memorable. And, you know, we could have, you know, this could have been conveyed by David in a very straightforward way. If you do what God says, you'll experience blessing, period. But when it's said with poetic forms like this, it's imagery that we remember. Obviously, this one is easy because the name of the book gives away. What genre is Proverbs 35? Proverbs. Yeah, there's your, there's your easy one for tonight around that one. And just as you remember from Proverbs, Proverbs are short, pithy statements about how life normally works. They're not promises to claim unless, and there was one exception, unless they were promised about the nature of God. And on this one here, every word of God proves true. So this is a proverb that you can claim as an unconditional promise that will always happen because it's about the nature of God, not how life typically works in the world. In John 17, 17, this will be historical narrative again. It's telling us the very words of Jesus. And in 2 Timothy 2, 15, do you remember what genre that was? Epistles. Yeah, the epistles, the letters. Here, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's, and he's writing this in the letter. And this one verse that we pull out, which is the very thing I told you not to do, you don't take one verse out of context in an epistle, is part of a whole flow of thought in that. So that's just a quick review based on those, um, those several things. So tonight, I want to just encourage you as we wrap up the study to keep learning, to not stop here. We, in some ways, we've only scratched the surface of how we seek to understand the Bible and seek to understand what's going on. I want to give you three reasons to really encourage you to keep learning, not just to keep learning the Bible, but to keep learning how you study the Bible and to keep growing in these areas of our life. Number one, we keep learning, and we keep learning how to study the Word of God because we want to grow in wisdom. And I've given you three Proverbs here. Proverbs 9.9 Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Now, again, this is a proverb, so this is how life normally works. There's probably there's exceptions to that normal pattern. But typically, if you give instruction to a wise man, he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. Proverbs ten fourteen: The wise lay up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool brings ruin near. Or Proverbs eighteen fifteen: An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Friends, as you're seeking to grow and knowing the Word of God and knowing God, I want to encourage you to press on that because, friends, we need wisdom. We need wisdom every day for the life choices we face, for everything that we tackle. We need God's wisdom, and wisdom is found in the Word of God. And so as we seek to know the Word of God better, we, we are gaining wisdom from the Lord on that. So we keep learning because we want to grow in wisdom. Number two, we keep learning because we want to grow in holiness. So we've talked about Psalm 19 before in our study here on Wednesday nights. By talking about the law of the Lord and the different descriptions of the law of the Lord, it says in Psalm 19, picking up in the middle in verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, buy them as your servant warned, and keeping them, there is great reward. And so, friends, we, we know the Word of God, and we want to make sure we rightly understand the Word of God because it's what warns us of what shows us what is right and wrong and what God expects. And, you know, God forbid we ever put burdens on people that are things that the Word of God does not require. That's legalism. But God forbid we also don't follow what the Word of God does require and have a life of licentiousness because we don't know what the Bible says. We want to make sure we're being faithful to what the Word of God requires. And then we already looked at John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is true. So, friends, we want, I want to challenge you to keep growing in your understanding of the Bible, your understanding of how to interpret the Bible, because it will help us grow in holiness. And finally, number three, this is important. It all culminates here because we want to grow in devotion. John 4, 23 through 24. But the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. 
For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. We have to worship God in truth in the way that God has revealed Himself to us, and God has chosen to reveal Himself to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. Therefore, we must know that if we want to worship Him. Donald Whitney, who has written a great book called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, I highly recommend it to you if you want to grow in your ability of Bible reading and Scripture memory and prayer and worship and evangelism. It's just a, he kind of paints a big picture for us in that book of how do we grow in the disciplines of, as far as Christ. But he had this quote from that book. So Christians must realize that just as a fire cannot blaze without fuel, so burning hearts are not kindled by brainless head. We must not be content to have zeal without knowledge. And that's just a good reminder for us. That it's, it's a both end. We want emotion. We want to feel the emotion. We wanted to, as Piper helps us see so well in a lot of his teachings and writings, we want to delight in the Lord. We want to desire him. But we know, the only way we can do that is to know who he is. And so the more we know how to interpret the word of God, the more we know God as he's chosen to reveal himself to us. And so the more we know God, the more we worship. It's about us being in relationship with the Lord. And just to encourage you in this, there's not going to come a point to where any of us can say, well, I'm a master at studying the Bible. I got it figured out. I'm done. <laughs> the depths of the mysteries of God is so great that we can spend every waking moment of the rest of our life studying the word of God and not cease to discover new things about God which is incredible as well because when you realize when we get to heaven and we see God with unveiled faces, after we've been in, in, with God for 10 trillion years, we're not going to yawn because we figured out everything about God. God is so much more infinitely greater than us that even 10 trillion years from now in his presence, we're still going to be amazed at who he is. We're still going to be discovering the depths of who God is. He is just that much bigger than us. <clears throat> and so the rest of our existence here on earth and forever and eternity we're going to be discovering how great God is. And as a result of that, we will worship. Not only now, but forever. We will worship as we know God more and more. And so I just put that little summary statement there for you. The more we learn about God, the more that should lead us to worship. And like I've mentioned before, until we see him face to face, if we want to worship him better, we must know him as he's chosen to reveal himself to us. And we know that through the scriptures on that. So how do we keep learning? I just want to give you two practical ways here. Number one, we live together in community. There is absolutely no substitute for this. This is the church. This is us together reading the word of God together. This is us together praying the word of God together. This is us together talking about the word of God together. It's those of us together as a body of Christ challenging one another with the word of God, speaking the truth of the word of God, speaking the truth in love to one another. And so it's in community that we grow so much. I can't tell you how many times there's been passages that I've heard my whole life. You know, I'll be sitting down having a cup of coffee with someone, and they'll talk about what God has just taught them, and they're reading that morning about that passage. And it just comes alive in new ways. There's something that God does, that the Spirit of God does in our midst when we get together in community with other believers, and we talk about the Word of God. And so I just encourage you in that, to, to make that a priority, to, yes, spend your time reading the Word of God on your own, but make sure you're also doing just as much talking about the Word of God with your wife, with your husband, with your kids, with your friends, with your neighbors, and to really fill your life in community with the Word of God at the center. So that's the most important there with it. But how do we keep learning? Number two, read good books. And let me clarify the word good there. There is no shortage of books that are available in Christian bookstores or on Christian sections of Amazon or ChristianBook.com, but they're not all good. And in fact, most of them probably are not very helpful for us. Read good books, you know, books that are worth our time, books that will really grow us in our understanding of who God is. And so as we wrap up tonight, I want to give you just some, some books I would recommend if you want to go deeper in these areas. And so that's what's on your handout here if you turn the page so you don't have to try to jot all these down 
furiously here this evening. But some things I'd recommend if you want a starting point. Some of you may already have all these resources, but this would be a place you could start as you seek to grow in these areas. Number one will be a study Bible. And I would recommend this as your very first resource. If you do not have a study Bible, that would be the first thing I recommend getting on Amazon or Christian Book Tonight or getting it or come see me and I'll give you one. Like, like really, it is one of the best tools you can have as you seek to grow in your understanding of the Word of God. It provides notes on passages. It provides verses, um, notes on the verses to help you understand the words, the meanings, the context. It provides detailed introductions, helpful insight on the history, key themes. But my word of caution for you with it is to realize that they all advocate for a particular theological perspective. Men have added editorial comments to it. It's not the same as the Word of God. Obviously, the scripture part is, but make sure as you're reading a study Bible that you're spending more time in the words of God than the interpretation of the words of men on the Word of God. Because it's really easy. And like, this is my favorite one, the ESV study Bible. Like, I think you heard me say before when the Gulf oil spill happened many years ago, there was a running joke that BP fixed the oil spill with by plugging it with the ESV study Bible. You know, it's like, it's one of the thicker ones out there. And it's a great one. It is just full of such riches. But again, realize every study Bible has a certain theological perspective to it. I personally am very close in alignment to the way the contributors of this one did it. And so hence, that's, this would be my top recommendation too. It's also a translation I really, really like. But like if you go to the beginning of the ESV study Bible, here's Genesis chapter 1. There's one verse and there's commentary on the verse. I mean, a lot of commentary on the verse. Now, not all the pages are like that, but as you go through it, it's more typical of something like this. You'll have several paragraphs of scripture. You'll have maps to help you understand the context. And the beginning of every book, they'll give you just some details and things that will help you with it. So if you get the beginning of Philippians, they're going to talk to you about... You know, when they believe this was written and what are the key themes and what was happening at the time. They'll give you maps of the settings of it and timelines of where things happen. How does this fit into the history of salvation? What's the outline of the book? And it just will outline for you a lot of key things to help you as you grow in your understanding of the Word of God. And again, because it's written from a theological perspective, you don't have to agree with everything in it. But it'll help you see, are my views at least in, in line with what people think. And if you have a, a new revelation, a new insight that no one else has had and you can't find anyone who ever believes like that, you might want to think again on that one. And so it just kind of helps guide your thoughts. The three I recommend if you want to study Bible, and these are all going to be slightly different. One is the ESV study Bible. It's just the most in-depth I've found. I love that. There's one called the literary study Bible. The literary study Bible looks at it from a totally different perspective. It doesn't give you commentary on every verse. It helps you understand the literary genres of it. So at the beginning of each psalm, it'll have a paragraph, and it'll talk about, if you remember when we did through the psalms, you know, this is a psalm of lament, or this is a psalm of confession. It'll talk about the literary styles to help you understand that so that you can understand the message that's behind it. And so it's just kind of a whole different perspective on a typical study Bible. Again, it's not going to have a commentary on every verse, but it's going to help you see big literary themes in ways that I haven't found any other study Bible to do. And then just another good one I like if you're familiar with R.C. Sproul and his ministry, the Reformation Study Bible is a, is a great one to have. So those would be my, my three recommendations. If you don't have a good study Bible, I do have an ESV study Bible here I'm happy to give you before you leave tonight. And so if anyone is in wanting a study Bible and you don't have one, come see me when we get done. I have an ESV study Bible to give away, and I've got a literary study Bible also. I've got one of each up here, so catch me when we get done if you would find that helpful in your walk with the Lord. Now, some other tools that may be helpful to acquire along the way. This one is a fun one. I love this one. It's a, it's a concordance of the Bible. Most of, do, do any of your Bibles have, like, concordances in the back where it lists words? So probably if you flip to the back of your Bible, you'll have something, you can look up the word love, and it'll give you five or six or seven references to love in there. Well, most of those, like the Bible that I preach out of, it'll have that, but it'll be abridged. They made this thing called a comprehensive concordance. 
every word of the entire Bible is listed alphabetically in here to help you find it. So you, when you hit those moments, you're like, oh, what is that verse that, and you can't think of what it is? Well, you can go right here. So, for example, if you're wanting to figure out what the Bible has to say about the word joy, well, I just I tabbed it over here. I went over to joy. This is comprehensive, so every verse that has the word joy in it will be in here. There's 179 verses in Scripture, at least in the ESV translation, that use the word joy. And so you'll find it, and they don't put the word joy, they'll put a J there. And so you'll see things here as you go down the list, obviously from the Psalms. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for, and it has this letter J there. Oh, shout for joy, that's Psalm 32, 11. And so it lets you find all the words of joy in the Bible. And so it's just a great tool if you're trying to look for something. You know, they're not terribly expensive. I mean, you can get these off Amazon. This is, again, the one I like is the comprehensive, the Crossway Comprehensive Concordance of the Holy Bible. Um, just a great tool to have as you're trying to look up. If you're, even if you're not teaching, you just want to have something so you can try to find something. It's great. The second thing I'd recommend if you don't have it, most of your Bibles probably have a map in the back, right? Well, there's obviously a lot more that can be shown than that. So they make these things, Bible atlases. And these monsters, you can use these for your curling in the gym, right? You know, in addition with your study Bibles or concordances. These are just great because this can give you a lot more history of what's going on. It'll give you more depth than just the maps you would typically find in your copy of the Bible. So, like, if you, and it's not just maps, it's articles. So, like, I was looking at this recently. You want to understand the setting of Jerusalem for the crucifixion as we're going to Holy Week. Here is for the archaeologists to best come up with of how they understand where things are placed in the city. So, it's not just maps, it's diagrams like this. And so, where Golgotha would be in relation to the walls and where at least they believe that the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was in relation to the city, in relation to Golgotha, in relation to all these places. And so, it just kind of helps stuff come alive. Because you can look at it, and you know, people like Dave who've actually been to Israel, you, know, you may not need this because you've already got the mental version of this from all your sites and tours and everything. But if you haven't had a chance to see these things in person, this is going to help you really get a feel for understanding the setting of things. And so, again, that one is a great tool as well as to have an atlas of the Bible. And there's different ones. That's just the one that I like. Another one, I'm, I'm showing you the book of it, this, but it's actually free online, so don't make a note of this and go spend money unless you want to because it's online. There's something called a Bible encyclopedia. Anyone have a Bible encyclopedia? Any of y'all got one? Yeah, a few of y'all do. This is the one I like, personally. It's actually four volumes. This is, this is the letters A through D of the Bible. This is the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's been around for ages, and it's just a classic one of this. And basically what it is, it's like an encyclopedia. There's, so you, someone mentions a name you don't know in the Bible or a place, and you're like, what is that? We can Google it, and who knows what crazy site you're going to find on it. Or you can go to a Bible encyclopedia and look it up. And so you go over here and like, you know, when my kids were watching the movie The Ten Commandments with me, they kept hearing this guy's name, Dathan. And who is Dathan? Well, I can go over here to Dathan and, oh, this is one of the ones who was swallowed up by the earth and it gives me the references to it. And I'll go, okay, that's who that guy was, you know, and it brings it back. Or you want to get into King David himself, there's about, I think, about four pages on King David. So some are going to be short, like Dathan is just one paragraph. Here's the guy who got swallowed up by the earth. Here's where it happened in the Bible. But like King David, they're going to talk about his background, what his name means, his genealogy, his youth, his anointing, how he meets Saul, how he defeats Goliath, uh, how he flees from the court as a fugitive, his reign was king in Hebron, how he defeats the Philistines. I mean, just on and on it goes with, with great depth. And there'll be, you know, pictures in here of sites they've found and stuff. And it just gives you a ton of depth on people, on places, on names in the Bible. And so I just highly recommend that one as well. And I'll link to it um, later on in here for you as, as to where you can find that one free online. But if you're like me and traditionalist and really like to have the book on the shelf, they, it's a nice four-volume set right now. The one other thing on that same page there, before, before we turn the page, and I don't have any pictures for you that, but a commentary. I just want to mention this briefly. 
When you want to go really deep into a particular book of the Bible, a commentary is a great tool on that. A commentary is just someone's teaching, basically, to explain a passage. You can find individual commentaries. You can find entire volumes of the whole Bible. And there's places for that. And I don't really have a recommendation for you. If you're wanting to study a particular book, talk to me. And I can give you specific things I like out of different ones. But there's benefits to commentary sets. There's, there's benefits to short individual volumes of things just to help you go deep with one particular book of the Bible. And again, it's a particular author's perspective, so read it with a sermon asking the Holy Spirit to really show you what's true because no one perfectly gets it all right. You turn the page. There's a few other book recommendations for you on this. Like I mentioned at the beginning tonight, our whole study has been called hermeneutics. That's just how do you interpret Scripture. If you want to go deeper in this particular study of what we've been doing, more than we can do in these 11 weeks, my number one recommendation is this book right here. 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible, Rob Plummer. Because this is not like a, a, a book that's going to make you feel like you're reading a college-level course. He actually just asks 40 questions, and it takes about two to three pages at the most to answer each question. So it's a lot shorter. It's not like you're reading massively long you know, chapters on this. It's, it was incredibly helpful. His questions are things like, does the Bible contain errors? What is the Bible? How is the Bible organized? Who wrote the Bible? Who determines what books were included in the Bible? What's the best English-type translation? Why is it important to interpret the Bible? What are principles for interpreting the Bible? How, how can I improve as a Bible interpreter? Who determines the meaning of the text? Can a text have more than one meaning? What's the role of the Holy Spirit in understanding the text? Is the Bible really all about Jesus? Why can't people agree on what the Bible means? And then he goes through, how do we interpret figures of speech? How do we interpret prophecy? You know, just all the type of stuff we did, just lays it out in a few pages. I know the guy, I actually took classes with him. He was a professor up at Southern Seminary. But this is just great, and I really would commend this one to you. If you're wanting to go a lot deeper in studying, there's, there's others, but I'd recommend this one to you. I actually have three of these, and so if you would actually read this and find this helpful, come find me after tonight, and I'll give it to you, if you'll read it. So just promise me you'll read it, and I'll, and I'll give it to you. Um, it's just one of the most helpful ones. If, you go, if, you, if you're more academic and want to go even deeper than that book can go, the one I recommend there is A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible, Robert Stein. Older gentleman now who has been one of the foremost scholars on how you interpret Scripture, one of the most foremost scholars on how you understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This is a great book. It's a lot more academic reading. It's not like these short chapters. But if you want to go really deep with it, <clears throat> there's, there's no comparison to that. Two other book recommendations tonight. I just want to mention these to you. The first one is called Translating Truth. <clears throat> if you're curious about Bible translation, I know back, if you think, many weeks ago when we started this series, we talked about the different types of Bible translations the formal equivalent, what we would call a, a word-for-word translation, and dynamic equivalent, or thought-for-thought translations. And we talked about the differences in how they define accuracy. We talked about the differences in their translation philosophy, their goals, and all that. And that's way back in, earlier in our series. And if you missed that, I'll be glad to sit down and talk to you more about that. But if you want to read about that, this book by uh, Philip Ryken and Wayne Grudem is a great one. And obviously, again, they have a particular bias, which is the same as, as what I would hold on this that the best Bible is going to be more of a word-for-word, an essentially literal-type translation, that the words of the Bible matter. Therefore, it's not the job of the translators to add interpretation to try to clarify. It's the job of the translators to make sure every word is accurately portrayed in the new language. And they kind of make a really helpful, not academic, but really helpful just case for why Bible translations like New American Standard and the ESV and and King James, some of these that we consider more literal, you know, really are important in our study of Scripture. So just a helpful book. And then finally, I'd recommend Systematic Theology. I don't know if any of you have a Systematic Theology. This is probably one of my favorite go-to texts. You put this one in one hand and your ESV study Bible in the other one, and you go to the gym and you do your workouts, right? I mean, these are, 
monster volumes, but this is just so helpful. What systematic theology does that helps in your devotional reading as well is it tries to take theology, the study of God, and systematize it into, into like, basically almost like genres. So it starts with, what does the entire Bible teach about who God is? What does the entire Bible teach about who man is? What does the entire Bible teach about salvation? What does the whole Bible teach about angels and demons? And what does the whole Bible teach about end times? So basically they pick a topic and they show you everything from Genesis to Revelation on that particular topic. So like we're starting back in three weeks from tonight. We're going to start a new series on, on the attributes, the characteristics of God. Well, you can find that in a book like this. There's a, there's a short chapter on the character of God, his communicable attributes. How was God like us in some ways? Like, how has he imparted to us his character and certain things in his nature? And it's really helpful. Now, the reason I would recommend, there's, there's lots of theology texts. I really recommend Wayne Grudem's for one primary reason. It's devotional. It's not just, you, get, you don't get down, you're like, man, that's fascinating. There's 17 views on that, that issue. You get down going, God is big. And so we get to the end of every chapter. He's got questions for you to think about on this, things to, to help you wrestle with, you know, who God is and how it impacts your life. Like he even asked, like when he was talking about the attribute of God's mercy, he said, if you were to reflect God's mercy more fully, for whom among those you know would you show special care this next week? Like he really takes theology and brings it to daily life. He gives you scripture memory passages with every chapter. He even gives you a hymn of the faith to sing to help you think about it. And there's not many theology texts that can bring the theology into the devotional practice quite like Wayne Grudem can. Can you find everything in here? There's a whole chapter on angels. Where did they come from? What are they exactly? He gives you definitions. He explains through a series of questions and answers. There are about 10 or 15 pages here. A doctrine of angels and why do we not worship angels? And anyway, it just really lays out a lot of helpful things in there. So if you're starting to want to have some resources to help you go deeper, again, I'd recommend a study Bible, an atlas, a concordance, and a systematic theology. You start with just those four things and you go from there. That'll be a great foundational thing. Now, just a few more things to help you tonight as far as if you want to find good books. Danny Aiken, you see it, there's a link on here on your, your handout, How to Build a Theological Library. Danny Aiken is the president of Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And he's written the most helpful pamphlet I have found. It's a free PDF you can download there on it, on resources. And so if you're like, man, I really want to understand spiritual warfare better, but I'm scared to get on Amazon and search for spiritual warfare because who knows what I will get. Go download Danny Aiken's guide and you can go find spiritual warfare. And there'll be about 15 books listed that are tried and true on spiritual warfare. They'll be a good place to start. And he'll usually put a star next to one or two. He said, these are the starting ones. If you, don't have, if you haven't read on this, start here. And he does this for everything. He does this even for, for books of the Bible. What are the best commentaries on the Psalms? What are the best commentaries on First Kings? What's the best commentary on Revelation? He just kind of, through many years of experience, has made a list. And so it's just a great starting point if you're really wanting to find some good resources. It's a lot better than just Googling them. Secondly, if you're looking for bookstores that sell books that have been really tried and true, you're not going to end up with a bunch of Americanized self-help theology on these or prosperity gospel. The two I listed are monergismbooks.com and WTS Books. That's Westminster Theological Seminary. These are two ministries that really seek to provide to the church books that are reviewed, trusted, helpful. So if you're looking for a good book, like, man, I want to get a graduation gift for someone and, it's a, and I want it to be a good book and you're not sure what it is, these are my starting points. You know, if you're wanting to find a good book yourself and you're like, I just want to read something good, I don't know what to start, start here. They always have good promos on their front pages and there's just really good things. Now, lastly, just a few online tools available for you. If you're wanting something like software on your computer to help, eSword.net is great because it's free, e-sword.net. 
It has probably 30 or more Bible translations in English, so you can compare. Well, how's the King James read compared to the NIV, compared to the ESV, compared to the American Standard? You can put them side by side. It's got commentaries and Bible maps and all these tools I'm talking about all built in, and it's free, which doesn't get much better than that, right? And so that's just a great one that I'd recommend to start with. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, I mentioned that wonderful four-volume set. It's got a whole website where it's, every article is free online. So you can go to that if you're looking up and you come across a name in the Bible, you don't know who it is or place, you can go look it up there on internationalstandardbible.com. And then lastly, if you really want software to let you go deep in Bible study, the two most common ones are BibleWorks and Logos.com. Um, both of these are paid software you have to buy. I'm a BibleWorks fan, but a lot of my friends use the other one. Um, this is pretty expensive software, but it lets you do a lot more in terms of like study the text. So like in Bible works, here, you, you all, you all the smaller crowd, you get my little cheat sheet on how I do this. Like if they actually have the English, like New American Standard Bible key to the Greek, and so you can actually hover your mouse over the, the, the word in English, and it shows you the Greek word it came from. It parses it for you and all that, and then you can click on the Greek word and see everywhere that occurs and say, show me all the variations of this form in the New Testament of this word. And it just... You know, it saves you hours and hours of, you know, digging yourself. And so if you hear me say something about this Greek word only appears three times in the New Testament, you just found out my secret BibleWorks, you know, um, software right there. It's amazing. And so if you really want to go deep, there's some resources for you on that. And again, those are resources all available. So turn the page as we wrap up tonight. Before we get to our discussion time in just a few minutes, I thought we'd just do a really quick review to, to hit the highlights, so to speak, of what we've done. So as, we've thought, as you think back through the last 11 weeks there's lots we talked about, but I want to kind of try to summarize it in three areas here. First of all, the most important stuff we said, number one, what do we believe the Bible is? And I gave you about five different things we believe the Bible is. Number one, the Bible's authoritative. The Bible's authoritative. It is God's word. It has authority. It's not just a man's opinion. It is the very words of God, and it carries with it the weight of God behind it. It is authoritative in everything it says and does. We're, we're to follow it. Number two, it's inspired. It's inspired. Inspired means it's breathed out by God. It's God's breath. It's God's literal words to us. And so we listen to it because it's God speaking to us. And I think we asked in one of our discussion groups earlier in this, this study, you know, would you listen to God more if he spoke with an audible voice than if he spoke through the Bible? And Dave and I had a fun discussion about that one, but the reality is he has spoken to us, and it's called the Bible. It's his breath. It's inspired. And we should listen to this as much as if we heard an audible voice of God because this is the voice of God to us on that. Number three is inerrant. I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T. Inerrant. No errors. That's what that means. The Bible contains no errors in any way, shape, form, or fashion. That doesn't mean there's not mysteries there, but there are no errors in any part of the Bible because it comes from God. It's inspired. Therefore, it has to be true because God cannot lie. Number four is sufficient. It's sufficient. Everything we need to know about who God is, everything we know for life and godliness is in the Bible. We don't have to go to other sources trying to figure out who God is. God, everything God wants us to know about God, he's put in the pages of Holy Scripture. It is sufficient for us. And the number five is clear. Now, again, this doesn't mean that there's not mystery, but the fact it's clear means you don't have to go to seminary or go to Bible college to be able to understand the Bible well. God has written the Bible so that his people can understand it. And so it is clear, something that you can with go to with, depending on the Holy Spirit and depending on prayer, you go to and open and say, God, teach me. And the Spirit of God illuminates it for you, makes it come alive. It's clear to us. Again, it doesn't mean there's not mysteries or things we, we struggle with, but the message of the Bible is clear for us on that. 
So those are kind of some things we believe about the Bible. Then we kind of turned our focus in the study to some key principles to how we interpret the Bible. We talked about what we do not do. We talked about the dangers of self-centered approaches where I'm trying to find me in the Bible. We talked about the dangers of pragmatic approaches or emotional approaches of God show me something. You know, we talked about the dangers of those approaches to scriptures. And I then contrasted it with seven different principles that kind of undergirded all that we've talked about in the genres of scripture these last 11 weeks. And here's your seven principles of that. Number one Always read the verse in context. Always read the verse in context. So the verses were not designed to be standalone things. You know, we take out verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, therefore I can go run the marathon tomorrow. Well, that's not the point of that verse. The point of that verse is, is I'm trying to live out a godly life with the help of the Holy Spirit. I can do this. I can live out this, the life that God has called me to live. And so we talked about the importance of context to understand a passage. You can take any, you, you can basically justify anything by finding a verse out of context to make it say what you want to say. So you always read the Bible, the verses in context. Number two, you ask questions of the text. You ask questions of the text. And this is true of every genre of scripture. We look at it and go, okay, who wrote this? What's the flow of thought here? Who is the audience? You know, if there's one question you ask every time, they'll clarify a lot. Who is the audience is one of those. Who is Jesus addressing here? What's he trying to help us see? And so you ask just lots of questions of the text. Number four here, or sorry, number three there, you let scripture interpret scripture. You're not clear on something, something doesn't make sense. Well, the best thing to do, even though I've given you all, mentioned all these great tools you can go to, the best thing to do is to look at what the rest of the Bible says on something. If a verse doesn't make sense, let the rest of the Bible interpret it. And lots of theological errors are corrected if you just let the whole counsel of God's word speak to something that perhaps is not quite as clear. So let scripture interpret scripture and, and start there first in your study of it. Number four, depend on the Holy Spirit. Depend on the Holy Spirit. God has given us the Holy Spirit. It is, a, it is his gift to us, and the Holy Spirit resides within us as followers of Christ. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to the text. The Holy Spirit inspired the authors and illuminates the text for us. And so when you go into to looking at Scripture, you depend on the Holy Spirit. You ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the truth of the Word of God, which leads to the next one, you approach the Bible with prayer. This is not an academic textbook. The Bible is God's words to us. Therefore, we want to know God for who he is. And so we go to the Bible and we say, God, help me see you. Show me your glory. Show me your greatness. Help me understand who you are, O Lord. Would you let your text come alive to me today? Holy Spirit, fill me that I might see this and obey this. And you just, you, you approach it with prayer. The next one, you approach the Bible in community. We talked about that one earlier on in, in, this, in this season as we've been working through this study. The role of community, because if we study the Bible with one another. And though our culture really stresses in a lot of areas the, the importance of a quiet time, you do realize there's no such thing as a quiet time in the Bible. There, there is an example in the Bible of Jesus withdrawing one time to a solitary place where he prayed, but there's no command in the Bible, thou shalt have a daily quiet time. What you see in the Bible is a command, thou shalt have a noisy time, a time of you and others talking about the Word of God, not letting it depart from your mouth, a time of you praising God, a time of you talking about the Word of God as you walk along the street, as you talk to one another. And so, yes, there is a place for our private devotional life. I don't want to minimize that. But we have to realize that the majority of commands about Scripture and the Bible are plural in nature, community in nature. And so our normal pattern should be us talking about the Word of God with one another in community. That's why when, I, when we're working with couples together and marriage counseling things, we just really encourage couples, you know, don't, you, you may want to have your quiet time and her quiet time. Why don't you try having a quiet time together? Why don't you all go to the Word together and talk about the Word of God and bring your kids and talk about the Word of God with your kids and friends talk about the Word of God together. And then the last one, seek to understand 
the cultural context. Remember, the Bible is written in a specific culture to a specific culture, and there's lots of things we misunderstand when we don't get the culture it was written to. Idioms, if you remember when we talked about idioms and figurative language, the whole love-hate you know, um, idiom in Scripture and what that really meant. A lot of that stuff gets clarified for us when we understand the culture of it. Just quick review for you here. There was the, we talked about how we interpret the different genres of Scripture. I just wanted to give you a quick summary. Historical narrative, that's the recounting of factual events in a story format. Just follow those seven things we just mentioned just above. Poetry, a way to express emotions in a memorable way that has figurative language. Remember, poems can be God's words to us. They can also be our words to him. And so if you'll notice that distinction, it'll help you clarify the meaning of it. Proverbs, short, pithy sayings that express wise general truths concerning life. Unless they are about the nature of God, they are not promises. Proverbs are statements of how life normally works in God's creation. They're not promised claim unless they're about the nature of God. Number four, prophecy. Messages from God that come through prophets to their contemporaries. Prophecy can be conditional or unconditional. Something's going to certainly happen or something will happen if people don't repent. And again, the conditions are not always stated. We talked about that. Parables, stories of comparison told to teach one singular point and to call for a response. You don't allegorize parables. You don't try to find multiple meanings. A parable has one single point. And then lastly, the epistles, the letters that are occasional in nature, written to a particular occasion, but with a wider audience and view. Now, before we get to our discussion back, I've asked you guys if you had questions you wanted me to answer. And there are two questions that have, come, that have surfaced that I'm going to at least see to take a minute to answer here on this. And if you have others to come up, let me know about it. One of the questions came out of one of the groups that was meeting back here one of the nights. And the question was, who decided on these rules of interpretation? I don't know if any of you have thought about that, but that's a great question. So who decided that a parable only has one point or that a proverb is not a promise to claim, but it's a short, pithy statement? You know, who made up these rules? Well... In a sense, the authors did. Because if you think about it, the authors wanted to be understood. And so the authors wrote with a particular... They may not be consciously thinking of the genre, but they wrote with a particular view in mind to be understood. Now, now who actually defined those rules? Well, in a sense, no one. They're defined by the culture. So again, it, last Wednesday when we had that beautiful sunny night where they were supposed to be so bad, you might hear meteorologists say, well, it was gonna, it's going to be raining cats and dogs tonight. Did anyone contact WSFA and be like, you can't say that. That's not literally true. Well, no. Everyone who lives in Montgomery, Alabama, if they hear the expression, it's raining cat, unless they're a new immigrant from another country, if you hear the expression, raining cats and dogs, you know it means heavy rain. Well, who made up the rule that that's an acceptable form of speech and not lying? No one. The culture did. It was a, the culture has kind of understood how idioms work or how figurative language works. Same is true in the biblical times. There were certain principles, and when someone said, I'm going to tell you a story, it was a culturally understood thing that there would be a point at the end of it, just like we would understand idioms in a certain way. Same thing with Proverbs. Not just in the Bible, but throughout that whole region at the time, Proverbs were short, pithy sayings about life. There are Proverbs from other authors outside of Scripture that are used in the exact same way. And so the culture of the time understood. So when Solomon writes a proverb, he's penning it as a proverb, and his readers would understand it as a proverb because that was just a culturally understood way of communication. The biblical, the biblical authors are not trying to hide stuff from us. They're trying to make it clear. And so who wrote the rules? Well, in a sense, the cultures did in some ways. And so this is where we go back and we try to understand, just like we with idioms in our culture we're trying to understand what, how their hearers would understand, what they were trying to communicate because they were seeking to be clear to their readers. And so we had to take a step back and try to understand how this genre was understood at the time. So that's my best attempt at answering who wrote the rules. The culture did, but the authors were trying to communicate in that culture, and so we seek to study it. Now, the second question I got was this one. 
I've, throughout almost every week, I've quoted 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, correction, and training in righteousness, so the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So the question that was raised, it was a great question, was, well, parts of the Bible written after 2 Timothy was written. So if it says all Scripture is breathed out by God, is that only the Scriptures that were written before 2 Timothy 3, or does that include the totality of the Bible? And that is a great question as well. 2 Timothy 3.16 can apply to the whole Bible. And here's my reason for, for saying that. When you see the word, all Scripture is breathed out by God, the, the, the Greek word for Scripture is the word graphe. Think of gra- graphic as writing is what that word means in the Greek. So literally in Greek you might translate that, you know, the writings are breathed out by God. So how is that word writings used? Well, if you go into like 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18... Paul will actually, is writing Timothy, he actually quotes something from Matthew and says, the scripture says, you do not muzzle an ox, you know. And he, and he goes back and he quotes this. So here Paul, in writing to Timothy, quotes the gospels and calls them the graphe, the writings, just like he would have when he wrote 2 Timothy 3.16. So the book most like 2 Timothy, which would be 1 Timothy, there the scriptures are explained, not just as Old Testament, which the culture would get, but it also includes the gospels on that. Well, what about beyond that? 2 Peter chapter 3. Now, 2 Peter was written somewhere about the same time as 2 Timothy. Well, in 2 Peter, Peter's writing, and he says there are things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. He said people try to twist his writings like they do the other scriptures. And so there, Paul's writings are called by Peter, scripture. So you already have, by the time that 2 Timothy is written here in the the mid-60s, you have the, the gospels and you have all of Paul's writings being called the graphe, the writings, just as you would have the Old Testament text. So all of that will be clearly considered as part of Scripture. Well, what about the, old, the other books? Well, you also have to remember the dating of the letters. The, the, the books in the Bible we have are not chronological. I think you all know that. They're, they're organized in a particular way, but they're not chronological. So, so 2 Timothy is one of Paul's latter books. It was actually written somewhere around, depending on who you talk to, A.D. 64-65. There are a few people who think it was perhaps around excuse me, even AD 67. So you're looking at probably about AD 65 he wrote this. That means a lot of stuff was written before that. Galatians, James, those are probably from the 40s. First and second, first and second Thessalonians from, the, from, the, from probably around 50 or so. His books to Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon are dated around 62. First and second Peter, 62 to 65. Titus around this point, Jude around this point. So the vast majority of all the New Testament was written prior to 2 Timothy with the exception of... 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. And we don't know in Hebrews, so we don't even know who wrote Hebrews. So there's not really a good way to date that. Most people date Hebrews before 70 AD, but you know, we really just don't, do not know on that. So the reality is, not only do we see the word graphe being used to describe the scriptures of the Gospels and of Paul's writings, the reality is in view here when Paul's writing um, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God, the majority of what we have as the Bible was already penned apart from 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. But then the only other thing I would say on that is remember the nature of the epistles. The epistles, the letters, were occasional in nature. They were written to a specific city, to a specific congregation, to a specific person to address a specific need. But as we talked about when we talked about the epistles, they had a wider audience in view. And so with that said, the nature of the epistles, they were designed to be understood as a wider audience. And so how do we know that the latter books like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation fall under 2 Timothy 3 and the application of that? 
I would just say you will look at how the word graphe writings is used in all scripture. You look at the dating of the books, and then those latter books you just understand to continue to be epistles, and it falls under it. So that's my best attempt at explaining 2 Timothy 3 applying to all of scripture. Now, with that said, if you have other questions, I'd love to talk to you about it. We'll go to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee or Panera, and I'd love to chat with you more about whatever questions you have coming out of this day. Now, I want us to break them in our, discussion, in our small groups in just a minute for discussion, but I want to give you several things I want you to think about in your discussion group tonight. Number one, under the theme of keep learning, just I want you to share around your group, and no pressure if no one has this, but do any of you use any tools besides the Bible in your study of Scripture? Are there any things that, like we've talked about tonight or books you've used that have been helpful? If so, encourage group. Let them know what works for you. It may not be for them, but if there's a certain tool you use, let them know and why. But then the big picture question, how can you grow in being a learner of Scripture? How do you grow, perhaps, in being a student of Scripture? What are some steps you can take as a follower of Christ to better know the Word of God? And then go to some big picture questions then, just two short ones here. What principles, lessons, or ideas from this study, this all 11 weeks, have been most helpful to you? Is there something that has been, as you've thought about as you've been reading Scripture, that has been most helpful to you, those things we just reviewed, something else? But then number four is kind of an application. How do you think God wants you to use what you've learned during these weeks? Because the reality is over 11 weeks, we've been talking about how we understand the Bible. What does the Lord want you to do with the stuff you've been learning? You've been so faithful week after week after week to give up your Wednesday nights to come and to talk about how we understand Proverbs and parables and epistles and historical narrative and how we understand the culture at the time and figurative language. You've given a lot of time for this. What do you think the Lord is trying to do in your life with that? And how can you pass this along to others? Remember, the whole point of discipleship is we're learning so we can pass it on to other people. So how can you help others grow with what you have been learning? And then once you talk about those things, let me take a few minutes in your group, share prayer requests. People in our congregation have lots of burdens, lots of needs, and just share some of those, and you all take a few minutes and pray for one another. If you're not sure what to pray about and there's no prayer request in your group, pray specifically for our Easter services this weekend. Pray for our Good Friday service on Friday night. Would you pray for the Easter sunrise service for the community? Would you pray for the Easter service that, that non-believers would just inexplicably be drawn here, that, that God would be bringing people, and people who may not normally go to church might see, just be driving down Bell Road and be like, I need to come to church this Easter. And that God would just be drawing or that we would be inviting people, stuff we talked about on Sunday two weeks ago, and pray for lost people. You're inviting certain people to come. Just would, If you're not sure what to pray, pray for the Easter weekend coming up, and the Lord would use it um, for the, his, his glory, for the good of the church as well. Now, right before we break up into groups, remember, I do have here, if you want to go deeper in some of these things, I do have several copies of 40 questions about interpreting the Bible. I'll be glad to give you. If you don't have a study Bible, I have a literary study Bible and an ESV study Bible. If you find that helpful, see me, and I've got those to give away for free tonight when we get done, if you would like any of those. So let's divide up into some small groups. Um, see who all could lead tonight for us. Uh, you're back here. Back here. John, would you? I think we could probably, with three groups here, why don't we circle up around with that, with around in those groups right there, and um, and and let's just discuss these things in our remaining time. God bless you. Thanks for hanging in there with us these eleven weeks, and looking forward to hearing some of your discussion tonight.